Hi, I'm Nicole Davidson, and this is the Negotiation in Real Life podcast, the show where we take the lessons learned in real life negotiations to help you build your negotiation toolkit. We'll be hearing from lawyers, entrepreneurs, and senior business people about their best and worst negotiations. Negotiation is one of the most important skills for success in business and in life, but it's a skill we are rarely taught. For many of us, we develop our skills purely through trial and error. We see what works, discard what doesn't, and if we're lucky, we'll have a few good mentors along the way. In this podcast, we're going to give you access to an even greater range of negotiation mentors. Enjoy this episode and please reach out if you have any questions. In this week's episode of Negotiation in Real Life, I speak with Elaine Avery, the principal of Unraveling Red Tape. Elaine has worked in and with the associations sector since 2011. She worked for the Property Council of Australia and Private Healthcare Australia before setting up Unravelling Red Tape to help a broader base of clients with government relations, policy and advocacy. Before that, she worked in law design at the Australian Taxation Office, conducting regular consultations with the associations sector. Elaine's favourite achievement while working for the ATO was having a formal complaint made against her for impersonating a government employee, as no government employee is that happy. Elaine is passionate about working with associations and government to inform and improve government decision making and create win-win-win solutions, a win for the industry or profession, a win for government and a win for the Australian community. In this episode, we talk about the importance of breaking down a negotiation into achievable subparts, tips for negotiating with government, managing your language for optimal results, dealing with obstructionist negotiators, cultivating patience in negotiations, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this episode, and don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. So welcome to the Negotiation in Real Life podcast, Elaine. Thank you. It's great to be here. Excellent. Well, I'm really looking forward to having a chat because I know you've done quite a lot of negotiating with government, which has got its own sort of challenges and skills. And we're going to talk about that in a little while. Uh, but perhaps before we do, you could give our listeners a bit of an explanation about who you are and what you do. Yeah. So my name is Elaine Avery, and I, I guess I'm passionate about levelling the playing field between smaller companies and the really big companies that can afford somebody like me full-time. And I just want to see those smaller companies get those those equal results that they're entitled to, which helps, I guess, get rid of sort of competitive issues and all of those sort of things. Um, I started off working in government, so I was pulled down into Canberra and basically learned this whole field that I'd never known existed, which is called public policy, which is how government decisions are made and refining those government decisions and, and doing your best to make sure that they really work in the best interests of the Australian community as a whole to help people who are doing really good stuff do it even better and not get in their way and help stop people doing bad stuff. And, yeah, probably about... About four years ago, I, I branched out and started my own business after I worked government, then the private sector, mainly industry associations, then started my own business so I could really help those, the businesses that don't have somebody full-time or don't necessarily feel that their industry association might be representing them in certain issues that, that are really passionate for them. 
Fantastic. So you sort of come in as a contractor. What sort of role, if you were talking about, you're talking about larger companies that might have specific resources, what sort of roles in large companies are you replacing in these smaller companies? So it's often called government relations or, or lobbying or public policy or policy and advocacy, or sometimes it's called advocacy. Great. Excellent. And so I'd really love to get a, more of a sense of what exactly it is that you do and, and how the negotiation sort of component comes into that. So perhaps you can talk through an example of one of the areas that you've been involved with. I might start with a really a simple example when I was working for one of the industry associations, just because it's... It's just such a no-brainer, really. So what happened was you probably remembered in the 80s and 90s, all your paperwork used to be paper. And government went through a time when it changed and updated the legislation so stuff could be sent electronically. But when government does that sort of thing, they make mistakes or they forget things. So what happened was the, the industry that I was working for had been kind of left out of that. So they were still legally required to send a paper document that really is gobbledygook no one can read it or understand it to their clients once a year now this costs the average company up to a million dollars a year in postage and handling just to get it get it mailed and everything plus in addition to that if you think about it what do you get in the mail bills and fines so everyone would get this letter with an envelope and they'd see the letterhead of the company and they basically, most people, they would think it was a bill or a fine. So because they hadn't budgeted for it, they'd stick it under a pot plant somewhere and lose a little bit of sleep over it. And then a few days later, they'd ring the company and want to make a complaint because they'd say, well, I don't owe you any money. Why are you sending me demand notices? They haven't opened the letter yet, mind you. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? And if they did, they wouldn't understand a word of it anyway. But so companies also had to spend a lot of resources training up their call centre staff that if someone was bringing up with a complaint around this time of the year, just to go through and see what's about this letter and, you know, and putting on extra call centre staff. So it was a real, a, a real pain, basically, for companies in terms of costs every year, their ongoing costs, staffing issues, having re- to re-divert all these resources into dealing with this letter that nobody really wanted. So... We went back to government, um, basically, and I said to government, look, because at that stage, and I guess this is where the negotiation comes in, if I'd gone back to government and say, hey, we need to get rid of this all together because nobody understands that everyone hates it, that wouldn't have happened because government isn't inherently conservative and they would say, well, it's being sent for a reason and although we don't know what that reason is, we kind of don't want to stop it because we might something bad might happen. So... The answer in this case was rather than going for what the the ultimate goal is, and companies had all the systems and processes in place to get out, so it didn't cost them a lot of money to produce the document because essentially a reiteration of last year's one, it was just a mailing list. So I went to government and said, hey, can we send it electronically? So can we send it by email or can we send it by people's app or their login portal? And if people want it by paper, they can opt to have it paper. So we did that. And obviously big benefits for clients because they're not getting a piece of paper that just confuses them and makes them lose sleep. It's a big benefit for the relationship between the companies and the clients and it's a massive financial benefit for the companies and they can read over all that resources that were sent into the mailing and the answering the calls and training their call centre staff into actually doing stuff that customers want. 
And then a few years down the track, you can go back and say, well, you know, our open rate on this is 1%. Clearly nobody reads it. And so it's often with these negotiations with government, that can be a staged thing. But at the end of the day, by being able to send those out electronically, you'd gotten rid of a really large recurring cost for companies. So it doesn't, although it's neater not to have to send them at all, it actually doesn't matter. As you said, it's that incremental step, isn't it? So, um, you know, I often talk to people, particularly when I'm running courses around influence, is break it down into what's something that they can say yes to at this point. Um, and that's a great example of, of how you've sort of taken that in and gone, okay, well, we know that this isn't going to happen, but we've, we've got these steps. So that's really um, interesting. Have you got other examples? You know, and I guess I'm interested because, as we said, you negotiate with government. What are some of the challenges that you need to overcome specifically when dealing with government and and how have you managed those? Well, the main challenges seem to be the clients and the industries. A lot of people just think you can't do it. If I talk to government, I'm going to make things worse. You know, there's just this real fear about dealing with government that somehow talking to government can make things worse. And I just come back to saying, like, and these are my words, these aren't government's words, the purpose of government is to empower people to do good stuff and make it as easy as possible to people to do good stuff and stop people doing bad stuff. And if what you're talking about comes into one of those categories, then it's something that government is often very interested in hearing about. You have to find the right language. You can't, you know, a lot of people get very, I mean, you can sit there and see it on social media. People get very emotional. They get very emotive. There's a lot of pie in the sky un factually based stuff that people come out with well you can't go like that I mean if I came up to you and said hey I want you to bake me a cake because I deserve a cake because I'm the best person you've ever seen and how dare you not bake me a cake you're not going to do it but if someone came and go oh you know my favorite cake in the world is chocolate cake and I know you bake the best chocolate cake and oh my god that would just make my day you're much more likely to do it and this is one of the things to really remember when you're dealing with government a lot of my first conversations with clients and potential clients, they'll go for an hour or two and grown men are close to tears because they're so emotional. Mm. And part of it is just the feeling listened and part of it is also that I do a lot of translation for them. I, I trans, I find out what they actually want because often people are, they're so, I guess, in the process and by the time they come to see me, unfortunately, they're losing sleep about it and they're just, they're just lost inside it. So a lot of it's saying, well, first of all, what do you actually want? So, for example, I had a, a, an allied health professional and they said, what we want is we want private health insurers to give us our own item code. And I said to them, okay, to me it sounds like what you want is more publicity for your industry and more publicity that your industry is available as private health insurance and things like that. You don't actually, this asking for something, and I said, and, and having worked for the private health insurers for a long time, I can tell you that what you're asking for is going to cost them millions of dollars. So we need to start, and it was like the first example, okay, we need to start with an easier ask. Let's go back and say, hey, can we write some articles for your magazines and say, you know, this is our industry, this what we do this is how we can help you and rebates are available for private health insurance you know start start with your, your bigger picture and and your baby steps and it's it's always the thing um 
And that's that's really interesting too, isn't it? Because it's actually, you know, and this is one of the things that I find is people get hung up on what they want, not realising that what they want is just one way of getting to their ultimate outcome. So they focus on this one solution, thinking it's exactly what they want, but it's actually only the road to the solution and there are other roads to get to it. So as you said, if the code is about getting publicity and recognition, well, then there's other ways you can do that as well. So that digging down and asking that question why, isn't it, is so important. Yeah, and rather than getting all worked up about it and going, oh, the private health insurers hate us or government hates us, I hear that a lot, hates us, Yeah. Um, have a look at what it is. And if it's going to cost you millions of dollars to change your systems and it's going to take two or three years to do anyway, would you really want to do that for someone? You know, they've got to put up a pretty good business case, not, oh, well, we're just different from, you know, remedial massage, so we want a different code because we're different. That, that's just, it's, it's, it's not a good enough reason, you know. You need to sit there and say, and, and work another, and what actually happens in a lot of these examples is by building that relationship, by writing the articles, by having these conversations at the end, after a few years, and it does take time, all relationships take time, They'll come back and offer you exactly what you wanted and sometimes a whole lot better. There's, there's a couple of things in there, isn't it? One is that ability to put yourself in the other's perspective and see if what you're asking for is reasonable from their perspective and then that longer-term benefit of building trusted relationships. And make it as easy as possible for them to do what you want. I I hear, again, I hear a lot. I wrote an article, I call it my seaweed article, which is on my LinkedIn page. It's not called the seaweed article. I can't <laughs> remember what it's called, but everyone calls it the seaweed article. It's about seaweed on a beach. And... I hear a lot of people, it's government's job too. It's not my job. And <laughs> it's election campaign, we're hearing that a lot. But anyway, uh. um, it's not my job. It's government. Why should I do government's job for it? And it's like, well, there's so many tens and hundreds of thousands of people, tens of thousands of industries asking government to do stuff. But if you can make it as easy as possible for government to deliver what you want, well, you're going to go close to the top of the pile. Whereas if you just sit there and complain and, um, and I've seen when I worked for government, I mean, we have 200, 2,000 page documents sent to us and you're trying to, and we're expected to sift through that and try and work out what these people want and how it works into government's objectives and how it interacts with the current law. Well, it's just not going to happen. Let's be reasonable. So, but if you send a, you know, a five-page clear document that says, you know, this is government's objectives, this is what we're asking for, this is how it fits into government's objectives, and can we work together on it? Which one's going to? Are you going to pick up the phone and ring the person back first? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I hear people comment about sometimes negotiating with government is that one of the challenges is that the person you negotiate with is often not the person who has the power to make decisions. Have you experienced that in the work that you've been doing? And what do you do if you see that in the in the workplace? I think and if you think about any large bureaucracy, they're all the same in that there's somebody very senior who makes the decisions. But generally, those senior people don't actually make their own decisions. They go on what a junior person says and somehow I see a lot of people who go I want to talk to the minister I want to talk to the head of the department and it's actually the worst person you can talk to like literally that's the worst person you can because once you've talked to that person a number of things happen it tends to solidify and I use this word concretize I don't think it's a real word but setting concrete, <laughs> we'll, we'll take it for today <laughs> setting concrete a, a decision that wasn't setting concrete up to that point 
Um, secondly, what you've done is you've used your last wild card already right at the beginning of the process. And if anyone has played any cards, you don't use your wild card as your first as your first thing because then you've got nowhere to go. The other thing it does is because you haven't spoken to the people who are the subject matter experts who have done all the work together, who put together the, the briefing note, you've actually kind of slighted them a little bit. And what will happen is the conversation you have with the senior person, they'll say yes a lot and not a lot and say, gee, that's, that's really bad. I'll see what I can do and I'll come back to you. But they'll go back to that person who's the subject matter expert anyway and you'll find that in, and if you actually manage to get to the point after you've drawn your final drop wild card, which is quite hard to go back from, if you actually talk to that subject matter expert, you'll find that you made incorrect assumptions some of your facts were incorrect and things like that because that's what happens. Like you don't know everything about a subject. So if you can go to that subject matter expert first who is generally quite junior because it's the person who's got the time to do the research, it's the person who's really passionate about stuff, then they'll tell you, they'll ask you questions, they'll tell you what you've got wrong. They'll go, well, that's actually not correct. Here's our data here. How do you explain this discrepancy? And you shouldn't take that as an insult. You should go, well, that's really interesting. Let me come back to you. Can you send me your data and I'll, I'll look at what I've got and we'll find out why we're having different stuff, you know, and you can't have those discussions at the senior level because the senior level, you've only got 15 minutes, half an hour, and, you and you know, and someone will walk in halfway through the meeting and go, oh, it's an emergency and then it's all over. Whereas with those junior people, you can have a meeting for four hours, one hour, you can really discuss stuff, you can go backwards and forwards, and you can actually work with them and they'll help you develop the best outcome for your system. They'll go to the senior person or the minister on your behalf. You don't have to go near the senior person or the minister generally in those cases. And that's it. It's done. But I think, as you said, if you if you go straight to the more senior people, whether it's a minister or someone below them up front, as you say, you slighted that junior person, the chances are that they'll be much less willing to listen and work with you, aren't they? Because uh, you've already sort of suggested that you don't value them as much as you might. So you've potentially created a rod for your own back rather than going first and demonstrating that you recognise their importance and, and expertise and bringing them on board with you. Absolutely. And, and and going further than that, you will some if you haven't spoken to the subject matter expert in government, you will make mistakes in what you've said. So you've immediately put them on the, the defensive and they're defending things and they're kind of just, well, this isn't possible because of X and that's kind of the end of it, you know. So you've you've created a difficult situation and difficult relationship that you never needed to with somebody who's actually very, very passionate generally about solving the issue and just as passionate as you are. So with negotiation being such an important part, I'm interested, you know, given that you've come from government, what has been your experience of government working with its staff to help them become better negotiators? Oh, I, I wasn't expecting this this question. <laughs> I don't know. I, I remember um, we did some mediation course, but there wasn't a lot on that. It's just we were kind of just sent out to talk to people and and have the, I mean, I did a lot of consultations with the private sector and with other government departments when I was in government, but it was just about having the conversation and being as prepared as I could be. But I can't really remember any specific negotiation training. So great question. Yeah, and look, I, I think this is something that I find not just in government, but in organisations everywhere, is that 
people have negotiation as a significant part of their role, but it's one of those things that's often overlooked in terms of developing people's skills. And it is left a bit up to trial and error. You know, who else have you seen in the in the department or in your organisation that's doing it well that you can learn from? Um, or are you getting bad habits from people whose skills may not be so good? So it's interesting to sort of see how that plays out in different sectors. What about for yourself then? Have you had any formal training at any point during your career in the negotiation space? I may have done a mediation subject at uni um, in my undergraduate degree. I think I might have, but that would be it. On that, it was really interesting in government because there was certain people in government who kind of see it as an us versus them, as government versus the private sector or whatever. And I found they were quite angry people. So part of working, and I think with any organisation, is to find someone, it doesn't matter what level they're at, who is open to the conversation. And then you can always negotiate with someone who's open to the conversation. Because at the end of the day, the point about negotiation, it's not about one person winning and one person losing. It's about everybody getting an outcome that's better than where you were. And hopefully when you're dealing with government, it's an outcome for the whole Australian community as well, which is just so important. I agree. And, you know, I think one of the things that I hear from people is that they tend to tell me stories about coming across that angry, uncooperative person rather than the, you know, the picture that you've painted is is of somebody much more collaborative. Have you got any tips for somebody who might be having to negotiate with government and if their first encounter is more with the angry person, what are some of the things that you might be able to do to get around them and find the right person? Well, I'd start off having a conversation and getting to know that. Remember that everyone's a person first and foremost. They're not an employee. They're a human being. And have a conversation because what might have happened is in a predecessor of yours or a predecessor organisation or another organisation you linked to another organisation in your industry, somebody might have really annoyed them. And I'll give you an example. So when I was working in government, I was working on this very, very complicated piece of, of law, like super complicated. There was all these interactions with all these other laws. And there was this one section where basically five complicated laws came together. And I was quite concerned to make sure this worked properly and it didn't um, override or conflict with the obligations of the other complicated laws. And I turned up to this consultation session and we gave everyone the, the documents and they have to sign confidentiality and all this stuff. And I said, now I've got one really important question. I asked, I can't remember what the question was, but I asked, I said, but how do these different sections of the law interact and how does this happen here? And I went around the table and asked everybody individually and everyone said, no, it's fine. I said, okay, well, I appreciate it's really complicated. If anyone sees an issue, please come back because we don't want to create a really big issue here because I can see the, the you know, the, the, the possibility of that. And the day that the legislation was introduced into Parliament, page one of the Finn Review, we told government this law wouldn't work. Now, when you're dealing with someone like that, who's just gone through that, oh, I mean, I wasn't angry. I just wasn't interested in talking to pe- those people ever again. I didn't trust them. So this happens quite frequently. And you need to remember that and have that conversation and just, you know, and say, well, Can we work past that? Can we find a way to build trust? See if you can work out in your organisation and with this person what actually happened to make them angry because there's not that many people in the world who just wake up angry every morning. Generally, there's something and a story like that. And I've heard other stories from other people where, you know, there's been lies across the newspaper and it's very difficult to undo 
a lie, particularly when you're in government and you have to kind of act in inverted commas beyond reproach so you can't go back. And there's no point going back to the paper and going, yeah, that was a crock of whatever. That would be my first place. Is If that person's angry, they're obviously very passionate about getting something right and they're probably a really, really, really good person to have on side. That's a great mindset to have. I like that because, yeah, you, you never know what's going on for someone else, do you? So that sounds like very, very good advice. Are there any other key pieces of advice that you'd give to someone negotiating with government? Well, a lot of people that I talk to, one of the biggest issues that I see when people are talking to government is they just don't think it's worthwhile or they don't think it can be done or they think they've tried it before. And a lot of it is it's it's not a quick process, but and nothing in life is really quick, particularly talking about um, relationships. And I get a lot of cases and, and I've seen a lot of cases through my career where people just say, no, it can't be done or there's no point or whatever. So a really good example was a few years ago now, federal government budget cut funding to a very small profession by about a third, which is massive. Like you can imagine if they're earning $100 an hour, you now earn $66 an hour for everything you do. And the profession was completely blindsided by this. Very small, very, uh, I guess, elite profession. And they they came to me and I and they said, can, can we do something about it? And I said to them, I'm very honest, I said to them, you know, basically it's almost unheard of to get some of these decisions reversed, but we can give it a really good go. And they were quite scared. They said, oh, but could we make it worse? And I said, really, the conversation we're having is you're telling me this could be the end of the profession, so can it get any worse? So basically went back, had the conversations, negotiated with the department, built up that trust and rapport with the department and tried different ways. Like remember they're human beings, so show them the value of this profession. And lo and behold, in the very next budget, we had it reversed. Now, in the meantime, I had other industry associations ringing me saying, this isn't going to happen, Elaine, but out, that's our job. I had all sorts of, you know, you're going to make it worse for everyone else in, in other in parallel industries. You're going to do this. You can't do it. No one's ever had this happen before. You know, a lot of negativity. And unfortunately, sometimes that happens. Unfortunately, different industries don't work as well together as they can. And very next budget, we had it reversed. And, you know, the whole profession's brought, it's actually brought the profession together really, really well because everyone saw how threatened, I guess, they were. And so I'd say, like, if someone says it can't be done, it can be done, but you need to be patient and you need to always, it's, it's the respectful, it's remembering whoever you're dealing with in government. Like, it's not easy to be told that you've just put together this budget paper and it's a big deal and it's wrong. Like yeah. can you imagine you, you've just done this really big thing and you think it's a great job and you've done you've done all of your bit, but somebody gave you some information that was misleading. And it's really hard to be told that when you work in government or wherever you work and you're really passionate about that you got it wrong. So part of it is, you know, it takes time. You can't just bring them up and go, hey, you got it wrong, fix it. You go up and go, well, let's have a conversation about this. Let's have a conversation about what's having as a, happening as a result of it and, and things like that. Absolutely. But it's interesting too that you talk about in that case, the industry bodies and their role in that. So I'm assuming that the industry body you're talking about represented the profession you were representing as well as other allied organisations and that they were prioritising one over the other. Is that what was going on or... Yes, and unfortunately, that has some industry associations, sometimes that's what happens. Uh, and again, it's an assumption. They, 
And it's one of the things I see a lot is people assume that government has a pie and they make an assumption about the size of that pie rather than going back to government and saying, hey, this is the best way that the pie should be. Um, let's work out a way to work out the size of the pie. Does that make sense? Might yeah. Not be, yeah, people will go, oh, no, but if government, if they're doing a reform, they must be wanting to take something from someone. So let's work out the people that will impact the least and we'll basically, we'll, we'll, we'll put them up on the, on, on, the, on the line. But you don't need to do that. You don't, I, I just don't understand why you'd negotiate from a position of weakness rather than a position of strength, and I see this all the time. Yeah, so so what it, it's saying is that with a bit more collaboration all around, in that case, the industry organisation, your profession and government could have actually achieved something that was perhaps better than what ended up being happening through just reversing the change that they'd made the year before. Uh, probably not. We probably would have got the same result, but it would have saved 18 months of angst yeah. for everybody, for everybody, because what's happened, you've got the 18 months of angst, but also those other industry bodies that went to government with the incorrect information, they now have a very distrustful relationship both ways with government because that industry buddy, for reasons that I don't understand, doesn't want to take responsibility for the fact that they gave the incorrect information to government. They're blaming government still. And government, of course, is like, well, you gave us the wrong information. If I was advising that industry body, I'd just say fess up and move on. Just say to government, look, really sorry, I'm not sure why it happened that wasn't under my watch, but let's see if we can work forward to build bridges. Like you can always draw a line in the sand and being really honest and taking ownership of stuff, looks like every relationship in your, in your life, it just makes it so much easier. Yeah, that's so often a problem, isn't it, when you've just got people trying to throw the blame onto somebody else rather than accepting mistakes are human. Really interesting what you were saying about working together. I've got another really interesting example. So this was an example and it's, it was a tax law example. So trust, I don't know if you know what a trust is. Trusts were initially established about 1600s. They were established for tax avoidance purposes. That was their sole purpose in the beginning. In the meantime, trusts range from being used for tax avoidance purposes right through to your superannuation as a trust. So there's a super legitimate end of it and there's every conceivable mutation of trusts in between, which is a real issue for corpse law and, um, and tax, particularly tax law because we want to encourage superannuation and make sure the tax regime is really a good regime for superannuation. We want to discourage tax avoidance. So what had happened is there'd been a piece of tax legislation that had been around for a long time and gone to and fro and actually um, had a conversation with someone in the minister's office recently about it and he just said, oh, my God, that was the worst piece, the worst project I ever worked on, which is hilarious. But at some point in the process I was talking to the guys in the minister who I happened to work with before in Treasury. So we really had a very good relationship. And they said to me, Elaine, we have to get this legislation through. But the problem we're having is that we're not getting consistent view from the industry. So everybody we talk to in industry gives us a different perspective and we can't actually reconcile them. So as you know, given we have to do a piece of legislation, the legislation we put out, if we do it, will be something that nobody likes because we're not getting, and every time we go back to industry, we just get something different and we, we can't work with that. So that's because each of the individual stakeholder groups is focused purely on their own needs, not about going, well, we know we're not going to get something 100% for us, so so what can be best for everybody? Is that 
you know, yeah. that sounds to me what's driving those challenges. And then the government's left going, what do we do? We can't please everybody. And as a side story, I remember when I was in government, we used to have this one guy who would turn up to consultations and one month he would absolutely swear that red is black because that was the client who was paying at that time. And the next time, red is green and has never been any other colour. And how dare you insinuate that red could be any other colour than green. And again, six months later, red would be blue. So you know this happens. <laughs> anyway, just a little funny side story. So we never, we never believed a word that came out of that mouth. Um, it's, it's the extra challenge of having that sort of level of agency in <laughs> negotiations as well, isn't it? And, and who knows what this person's actual view was if he's there <laughs> representing his own clients and, and perhaps pushing forward something that's nothing to do with what he believes as well. That's a great point. So I'll come back to this example, the trust example. So I kind of, I just said, okay, leave it with me. Uh, I already knew who all the stakeholders were in the sector because I've been working in the sector for a while. I actually spent, I think, two weeks nonstop on the phone ringing every stakeholder in the sector, starting with the, the thought leaders because there's always leaders in any group. And I basically said to them, look, it was quite interesting. It's quite a conservative male-oriented industry. So they're all, who are you little girls talk to me, which was quite funny. Um, <laughs> We still get that as a female. Yeah, occasionally. And, and I said, look, if you can give me your top three to five things that you want, your absolute top, what I want to do is from all the stakeholders, get those top three to five, group them into issues and then have a meeting and see if we can agree as a group our top three to five and then everyone's submissions or letters to government We'll have the same top three to five, and then you can add whatever you want on the end. That's what I said because I thought, well, that might be the easiest. So once I've gotten the industry leaders on board, I just saw, you know, X, Y, Z is on board next, and then everyone, they didn't want to be left behind on the bus. So that's an interesting part of it. But at the end of the day, we had two industry meetings. There's so many people there. And we actually ended up with a joint industry submission with about three pages of logos at the end. And we got a really good result. So government got a piece of legislation that everybody was happy with and was workable and they were happy with because it was quick and easy because we put this together and we only had the three to five things. We didn't have all the 19 things below. So I guess another piece from that is don't ask for 26 things from government. Focus on clear, simple messages because you can get the 26 things down the track. Like As, you, as we said, right, we're getting one step at a time. Work on your top top cup one or two things get that and then go to the next one yeah because again if we come back to the cake example if i turn up your house and say i want 56 cakes from you you're just gonna go who the hell are you <laughs> <laughs> absolutely and and you've done it it's another example of where what you've done is you've gone and put all the legwork in so that then it becomes easier for in this case government that you're asking to do something but you've you know, it doesn't matter who you're negotiating with. If, if you can actually do that simplification for people and, and put that groundwork in to make it easy for the person who you're trying to get to say yes, you're going to increase your chances of success. And make it quicker. And make it you know, quicker, it absolutely. because you're doing all that work. But actually, by having done put all that groundwork in, you've made it super quick because the other person, oh, well, you've done all the, all the work. This is super easy. Love it. I always talk about the concept of go slow to go fast. Love it. Uh, I'm going to use a, that. 
you can have that one. I'll let you use that one. <laughs> so, Elaine, it's been great talking with you. And I think there's some really interesting points in there for organisations that do need to deal with government particularly. I know that you consult to small and, and medium-sized enterprises and industry associations and people like that. If somebody wanted to reach out to you to have a discussion about some challenges that they were having, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Whatever suits them best, give me a ring. My number is 0427 631 315. Send me an email. It's elaine at au, or just Google Unraveling Red Tape. Got a LinkedIn page, a Facebook page and a website. Fantastic. And I'll put all of those details in the notes for the show as well to make it easy for people. So thanks again for your time, Elaine. It's been really nice chatting with you today. It's been great fun. Thank you very much, Nicole. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Negotiation in Real Life podcast. If you've taken away some great tips from this episode, I'd love to hear about it. So please connect with me via my website or LinkedIn. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to learn more tips to improve your negotiations, head to our website, nicoledavidsonnegotiation.com.au, where you can follow my blog, view presentations and download resource sheets. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you get every episode as it comes out. If you have an interesting negotiation story that you'd like to share with my audience, head to the website and complete a guest application form. Until the next episode, happy negotiating.